The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 81. Hi, I'm Dr. Bill Diamond, co-author of Fire Your Excuses, and you're about to enjoy one of my favorite excuses for diving into yet another great book. It's The Read to Lead Podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. you really want to make friends with people who are, are very powerful or influential or awesome or smart, find ways that you can provide value to them or find ways to help the people or causes or groups that they care about. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, and welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where each week we sit down with a successful and inspiring author to discuss their latest book and their expertise in areas like leadership, personal development, productivity, career marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. And in today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Shane Snow, author of Smart Cuts, How Hackers, Innovators, and Icons accelerate success. I plan to ask Shane about things like why the old mantra of if you work hard, something good will eventually happen is a delusion, the role of mentors and what the research says about formal versus informal mentoring, what's wrong with the idea of fail fast, fail often, and much more. First, a couple of quick announcements before we bring Shane on. Our sponsor today, Blinkist, they serve up written and audio business book summaries inside their free app. For a limited time and just for Read to Lead podcast listeners, they're offering 50% off both their Plus and premium subscriptions. That's a year's worth of written or written and audio summaries of every business book inside the Blinkist app. 50% off, but you have to be one of the first 100 people to take advantage. To do that, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. And if you happen to be hearing this and it's the day of release, May 5th, 2015, you still have time to take advantage of a special offer from Chris Brogan. If you've ever recognized a need you feel you're equipped to solve because of the knowledge that you have, maybe you've thought of creating a course, maybe an online course at some point, but weren't quite sure how to go about it, Chris has a fantastic course for creating online courses. I even bought it myself after having created my own successful online course because I knew I would learn a ton from Chris and I was not disappointed. He's closing registration for online course maker midnight Eastern time, May the 5th, 2015. Go to com slash maker for more on that. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash maker, M-A-K-E-R. And finally, there's a new and easier way to join our private Facebook group for Read to Lead podcast listeners. We'd love to have you be a part of it. All you need to do is text the word Read to Lead, all one word, to 33444. You'll get a text back asking you to submit your email address, and we'll get you added to the Facebook group and on the newsletter list. Again, that's Read to Lead, all one word. Text that to 33444. 
888-444-4444. And we'll make sure you're a part of our private Facebook group just for Read to Lead listeners. Shane Snow is a journalist and entrepreneur based in New York City. In 2010, he co-founded Contently Inc. with a mission of building a better media world. He writes about technology for Wired, Fast Company, and others, and is known nationwide for speaking about the future of media. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker and The Washington Post and Time as well. A fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts, he's been named one of Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 Media Innovators, Details Magazine's Digital Mavericks, some pretty cool titles here, and Inc. Magazine's Coolest Entrepreneurs. Smart Cuts is his first book, I'm guessing probably not his last. Shane, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. We're excited to have you here. Thank you, Jeff. I'm flattered at the, uh, at the introduction. It's great to be here. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is define the word smart cuts, how, how you use it, and, and what do you mean by it? So what I mean by it is a smarter way at looking at problems. So the concept in psychology is called lateral thinking. So it's about mm. looking at problems or challenges from a non-traditional perspective. Uh, and so smart cuts was kind of the term that I, I tried to, to build out of that, not uh, not shortcuts, it's sort of a playoff of that, where you know, a shortcut is, is something that, that I see as being amoral. It could be good, it could be bad, but often it's something that denotes sort of taking value or cheating, um, where what, uh, what I try to convey with smart cuts is finding smarter paths, not just sh- shorter paths, uh, to making things happen. And what, when you look at the history of breakthroughs in business or in the arts or in science, what you always see is someone has taken a non-traditional approach to, to the problem. They've gone outside of the lanes or the lines uh, of their industry or field, and, uh, and that's what I call a smart cut. Well, there's a bit of an aside in the intro of the book uh, that's not the focus by any means, but it caught my attention because it's a topic about which I'm passionate, uh, and I'd like to get your general take on our formal education system, Shane, and its ability to keep up with or its lack of ability to keep up with the pace of today's world. Well, one of the things that I think is is fundamentally uh, outdated in our formal education system now is the focus on kind of dumping knowledge into people's brains without teaching them how to think or mm-hmm. how to uh, synthesize or process. And really, in an era where we have all of that knowledge that we could be memorizing in textbooks available in an instant, you know, on our smartphones, on Wikipedia and everywhere else, you know, random facts or or just facts in general are not going to make us better at problem solving, better at making our jobs and lives easier. Being able to access those facts, being very good at using problem solving, whether it's logic or whether it's it's lateral problem solving, is uh, is really the thing that needs to be taught. So, you know, this is, is... Kids being taught to learn how to learn is a is a much more needed idea than kids being just taught what to learn and what to think. And uh, the other problem along with that is this very sort of mile wide, inch deep problem that we have in education as well, where you know we kind of throw everything in there. If we sprinkle knowledge in all of these fields, that doesn't help uh, help either. One of the other things about education that I explored in the book is in, in the fourth chapter I mm. talked about. Finland's formal education system and how they went from a very middling uh, system to the best in the world in, in all sorts of categories mm-hmm. and, and to becoming this education system that now a lot of other countries are copying and even today starting to surpass by using their methods. And 
part of what uh, what is interesting about their system, there, there are two things I think that are really interesting. One is that all of their teachers are very highly educated. You have to have a master's degree to become a teacher in mm-hmm. Finland. And, uh, and teachers, unlike uh, places like America, where, uh, where teachers have very short shelf lives, I guess, uh, teachers in you know, secondary and primary school are in for life. They will teach until retirement. Mm-hmm. They're paid well, they're treated well, but they're also extremely educated where that whole, I guess that builds this platform for, you know, uh, basically a better setup for students to do this thing, this learning how to learn. Um, because in, you know, in a lot of places in America and schools that I went to, there were a few amazing teachers and with really great education. And then there were a lot of teachers who were just (laughs) there to be the track coach (laughs) and kind of teaching whatever subjects. And that pulls down, kind of the, uh, the, whole, the whole system. Um, so Finland, that was one of the key things that they did. Another thing that's very interesting is they removed the focus on sports. They, they say extracurriculars are great, after school, that's fine, whatever. But when you walk into a school in Finland, what you don't see is what you see immediately in an American school, which is a trophy case for basketball and football. Right. Uh, here, the thing that we celebrate in, in high school our sports achievements. We don't celebrate academic achievements. And in Finland, it's the other way around. Yes, you can do sports you know, on your off time, but what we celebrate is uh, academic performance and, and being smart. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're valuing smarts in a way that I think our culture, you know, we put a label on people who value education. We call them nerds. And, uh, and that's, I think, in a very small, it's a very small thing that I think fundamentally points to the flaws that we have in our system that, that are not impossible to uh, to correct. We we just you know we've been sort of running in the wrong directions uh, in a lot of ways in in our system. Another thing uh, from the intro of the book uh, that I really identified with, and I'll quote directly from the book because I, this was drilled into me as as I grew up, is that quote too many of us accept the plateaus our lives have have offered us and succumb to passivity to the well-meaning delusion of, if I work hard enough, something good will hopefully happen to me. Uh, but you say it doesn't have to, to be that way, Shane, that we can actually do things like, I think the way you put it is manufacture luck and engineer serendipity, right? Yeah. One of the things that I, I concluded when I was working on this book, because I, I came from you know, writing about computer hackers and, and people who actually are more in sort of the shortcut category, mm-hmm. not the smart cut category. And you know what I found is that people who change their lives or that change the world actually do tend to work very hard. You need all of that effort, but you need it applied in the right directions. You need it applied on the right path or with the right tools, uh, rather than the same the same way. So I like to say that, and this is another you know sort of thing with our our culture is we're taught to think that the guy standing in the ditch digging a ditch for eight hours a day is working really hard and, and to respect that hard work. Mm. Whereas the guy who sits next to the ditch for four hours and thinks about it and then spends four hours digging uh, and per- perhaps a better ditch, uh, we, we see as, as lazy or, or you know, doing something wrong. Um, but yeah, often what we think is that if we simply put in the effort, we will succeed or we'll boost our chances of success or you know, something good will happen if you pay your dues long enough. And when you look at you know the 
data around great success stories or successful companies or people with great you know, careers or people who do make breakthroughs in their industries, you see that that's not the case. They aren't the ones who wait around. Um, and it all comes back to that idea of, of, of being smarter about the way we work rather than just simply working. Reading about this, it reminded me of a Steve Jobs interview that I saw, and he says something like, um, everything around you that you call life w- was made by people no smarter than you, and, and you can change that. And, and I'm one of those folks who grew up in a world where that person wasn't me. That was always supposed to be somebody else. And, and so I really appreciated how you, how you sort of unpacked that in the book, because I got a lot out of that personally. Well, thanks. What I wanted to do is show how a lot of the people that we really respect and a lot of the companies that we revere uh, are, are just like us, you know, because I mean, so many of us have dreams and passions and, and things that we're good at or that, you know, or ideas for, for doing things differently. And we don't act on them because we think it's a lot harder than it is, or we think that, you know, that it can't be done. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of the characters that I wanted to include in the book, you know, the stories that are kind of wrapped around the research uh, there were two categories, people that you know, but the story you don't know about them. So people like Jimmy Fallon, who was this, you know, talented, funny, cute kid from uh, upstate New York who knew no one and and really did not have a shot and how he became, you know, one of the great uh, comedians and entertainers of our time very, very quickly. So the story that you don't know about that. And then uh, stories of people you don't know that are, are you know, maybe just like you that have... Uh, have gone on to do incredible things using this idea of lateral thinking. People like Jane Chen, who you know was a, a student in grad school and uh, and invented and ended up inventing this device that uh, has helped save over 150,000 babies' lives. Mm. Um, basically, an alternative to an infant incubator that would normally cost 20 grand, she made for 200 dollars. Mm. And and showing that these things are possible if you can change the way you think about problem solving. You can change the way you think about whatever you're working on, like these people did. Um, I'm hoping that that message makes uh, this kind of ambition, the kind of ambition that these people have, more uh, accessible or more, more realistic to the rest of us. Shane, what role does, does having a mentor play in the Smart Cuts process? And, and what does the research tell us about uh, formal mentoring versus informal mentoring? So the thing that I was looking into when I wrote the mentorship chapter was this pattern that you see in great success stories that mm. seem to, there seems to always be the presence of a great mentor anytime there's a great success story, at least on the surface, right? And this is in history. You have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Alexander the Great, these sort of great chains of mentors Obi-Wan you, Kenobi. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. In, in film, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's the hero's journey. You know, in, in Hunger Games, there's Haymitch. He's kind of the, the, you know, the drunken mentor, but he prepares the hero for the challenge. And so this is a very common thing. And you hear great uh, and, and humble leaders talk about their mentors that have helped them through. So the pattern that I saw is, you know, the question was, huh, it seems like having a mentor accelerates your ability to get on the path that you need to and to find, you know, a smarter way to get to where you're going. Um, or to train better or whatever it is. The mentor, the presence of a mentor seems to help. And so I looked into the academic research, the business research on mentorship programs and found, disturbingly, that formal mentorship programs uh, don't actually work uh, versus <laughs> sort of no mentorship. And, and actually the first uh, you know, research that I found found that 
mentorship programs in general or mentorship in general has sort of a neutral effect that sometimes it helps and sometimes it makes it worse and sometimes it doesn't help, but on average, nothing. Mm. So that was, you know, kind of unsettling because what about Star Wars, right? (laughs) (laughs) What about Socrates? Um, And so then when you unpack the research, what it is is there's a split, a very big split between formal mentorship programs where you're sort of matched with someone who's older than you or more experienced and they're supposed to help bestow some wisdom or tell you what to do versus informal mentorship relationships where essentially a friendship develops and where there's real vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So where the mentor, and in some cases you get magically formally paired with someone who ends up becoming this friend, but that's much rarer uh, what typically happens in, in this kind of informal mentorship relationship is the mentee seeks out the mentor or vice versa, and they become friends. And the mentor is along not just for the training, but for the journey. So they want to guide the life of the person they're mentoring. Um, the mentor can call them up you know, when they're stranded on the side of the road or when they've had a breakup or <laughs> you know, when they want to know, you know where they should go to college or you know, whatever. And actually vice versa, when the mentor you know, has their child, like the mentee comes and shows up to the hospital. Right? Those kinds of relationships allow for basically more vulnerability and trust where you can open up more and get at uh, the deeper things that lead to, uh, to success. Um, but also someone who you're really close to can give you the harder feedback. Someone who can notice the details can give you that straight and you'll take it better than someone who you've been formally matched with who you don't have that trust and respect. But the other thing that I looked at in this sort of journey of of mentorship uh, study was what about people, there actually are a surprising number of people who have made it without mentors and who have done incredible things without mentors and, uh, and what you find is that in many cases, they too have kind of that mentor type figure, but it's someone that they don't know. It's just someone that they obsess over um, by reading their autobiographies or uh, sort of asking themselves, what would so-and-so do? And so this is, this is almost, I guess, the, the hack or the, you know, the alternate path to, to getting a great mentor is, uh, is to try to walk in the shoes of someone who's done something uh, you know, that you want to do in a great way. So an example that I love that I wrote about is this guy named Dwayne Edwards, who is the second African-American shoe designer in history. Mm. It's a kid who grew up without a dad in the hood in Englewood and uh, had people tell him, no, you can't go to college um, and no, you can't be an artist. And his high school counselor said, he said he, and he wanted to be a shoe designer because he loved shoes. His high school counselor told him, black people don't design shoes. Mm. And kind of crushed his dreams. So he grew up in this, the odds were against him to, to be successful. And he went on to become this amazing, famous designer for Nike and Jordan. And, uh, and he got to the top of this industry. And then he started a design school for uh, kids that don't have access to, to design education. Mm-hmm. Really amazing guy. And he said that, you know, he didn't have really, you know, a mentor in his early days when he was the one black kid and, you know, designing shoes as sort of the most junior employee and he had to work extra hard to prove himself, said that his mentor was Jackie Robinson. Hmm. That here was another kid who in a very different industry was facing the same kinds of challenges. And it turns out that Jackie Robinson wasn't the best baseball player uh, in, in the leagues, uh, but he was the best player that he had the most, I guess, fortitude and he was able, he was the most like Teflon of any of the other black baseball players. So when he came into the, you know, the white leagues, 
he, you know, he faced all of these challenges, but he handled them uh, really, really well. And so Dwayne studied, he read all of these books about Jackie Robinson and studied how he did that and what he was like and his attitude and how he faced these conflicts and these challenges and he used that as sort of his guiding star. So, you know, the, the thing that I love about that, I guess, is that relationship too is not a formal uh, relationship at all. It's a very personal one. It's a very vulnerable one. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that makes mentorship work is this inspiring you and pushing you to, uh, to deeply analyze the little things that make a huge difference. And, and you can do that with someone that you know that you become friends with and vulnerable with, or you can do that with someone that you respect so much that you don't want to let them down or you, uh, you want to be just like. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me that, you know, it doesn't have to be even somebody that, that you know personally. You hinted at that. I mean, it's like Jimmy Fallon in the story of the comedians that he idolized and, and being able to, to mimic them was what, what eventually got him on Saturday Night Live and being able to do it so well and channel that. Reading books or listening to podcasts is, a, is, is another way to be mentored. Absolutely. I mean, talking about education, right? Self-education, especially in this era where we do have access to you know, the internet, yeah. right? And, and phones where we can listen to, you know, we can actually access the, you know, the great, you know, thinkers and doers of our time, you know, just mm-hmm. in our own headphones. Um, that's really powerful. And I, it, that is a theme that I saw a lot among the people that I profiled and that you see a lot in general, you know, with, uh, with people that do incredible things is self-education through uh, learning from directly from people who are, are, have done incredible things is very powerful, you know, versus uh, the, you know, the textbook paradigm of, you know, read this page, answer this quiz, figure out, you know, the strategy for the multiple choice, and then, you know, forget it all on Monday. Um, there's, uh, there's something powerful about that. And so, yeah, we live in a good time for that. Uh, one thing that's really cool for me is I've heard from uh, several uh, college professors across the country who are doing things like you know, taking podcasts like this one and, and making it a part of the curriculum. And uh, it's just a really cool thing to see. Uh, what, in your opinion, uh, Shane, is wrong with this mantra we hear a lot these days that goes, fail fast, fail often? What's wrong with that? So there, there's something nice about it that I'll say first. <laughs> and it's, it's that we, for a long time, have been very harsh about failure, Mm. especially in business. And in many countries today, it's still the case where if you start a business and fail, you're sort of labeled as a failure and, uh, you know, you're branded that way. Mm. And in, in some countries, you know, this actually dishonors your family. And so what it does is it deters people from taking risks. And, you know, the very thing that, you know, that I, I love to talk about lateral thinking is risky. You know, you're going down a different path. You're approaching things from a different angle than is conventional. Conventional is safe. So uh, this fail fast, fail often mantra is this thing that was born out of Silicon Valley that basically celebrates failure. It, uh, you know, it's about um, trying things and not worrying whether they'll work or not so that you can learn really quickly. So there's something positive about that if we can say there's no stigma to failing, it's just learning. The problem is and and the thing that I I studied and and wrote about is that when you look at the statistics, failing doesn't actually help you necessarily learn. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's nice to be able to fail, to not be punished for failing, but it's also not a good goal. (laughs) And and it's better to succeed fast and succeed often. So the, the question is, how do you do that when you're working on inherently risky things? And, and really what, uh, what I get at in, 
you know, in, in the book is how do you change failure into something that's simply feedback? How do you actually make a learning experience out of failure in a way that mm-hmm. is constructive and that doesn't actually mean failure? You know, even if you know, people talk about semantics, right, they might say that you know, something is failure that really isn't. When I talk about failure, I talk about landing on an aircraft carrier. You don't want to fail fast and fail often when you're landing on an aircraft carrier. If you're building a nuclear power plant, you don't want to fail fast and fail often. It's lives are at stake, right? So mm. how do you get feedback? How do you create these sort of micro steps of potential failure or micro risks that then become so micro that they're no longer risky um, so that you can learn? And one of the ways is the, uh, the sort of flight simulator method. So if you don't want to crash on an aircraft carrier, practice crashing on a flight simulator mm-hmm. where failing is actually not failure. The other way is, uh, is this idea of learning from failure without having to fail, which uh, one of my favorite uh, bits of research that I uncovered was there was a group of basically heart surgeons, well, there a group of researchers looking at heart surgeons at a time when there's a new surgery that every heart surgeon got to learn. So basically there's a surgery where in order to perform the surgery, you had to stop the patient's heart, stitch on this uh, new tube, and then restart the heart. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people didn't make it because stopping someone's heart is dangerous. So they invented a surgery where you didn't have to stop the heart. You could, it's called a CABG surgery, bypass grafting. You could do that without stopping the heart. So it's this revolutionary thing. People were excited. So these researchers watched doctors for 10 years learn this new surgery and they calculated their success and failure rates. And what they found was really interesting, what they called a paradox of failure. They found that if you were a surgeon and you messed up this new surgery, you were more likely to mess up future surgeries. You were gonna, you're more likely to be bad at it in the future. And you were slower to master that surgery. Whereas if you, you know, somehow did it well, then you were more likely to do better at it in future surgeries. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this compounding effect of success. But the really interesting thing is, if you saw your buddy fail at the heart surgery, you got better. And if you saw your buddy succeed at the heart surgery, you didn't really get better. Mm. Uh, you know, it was, it was sort of your success made you better and someone else's failure made you better. <laughs> and your failure did not make you better. And uh, so they call it this paradox of failure. And the way they, what they concluded is that uh, heart surgery is an extreme example of something in basic human psychology which is that we explain our own failures in ways that allow us to live with ourselves. Mm. So if you, and we do this in, you know, in heart surgery, especially but we do this in sports all the time, right? You will externalize the reasons for your failure because it's easier for you to live with yourself. So if you're a heart surgeon, you'll say, you know, the patient was unstable or there wasn't enough time or it was hard to see, you know, these probably valid excuses, but they're excuses that don't help you improve. Mm. They're external factors. Um, and just like in sports, the t- your team loses and you say, oh, the ref sucked, you know, and it's a bad call and the sun was in their eyes and, you know, whatever. Whereas if you do well on the surgery, you're more likely to focus on, oh, that was good how I did, you know, I made this stitch. I'm going to do that next time. You know, this worked well. If you, you know, you win the football game, it's all about how hard you trained. And, you know, we did this pass and this play was so clever and we read the defense. Um, so you tend to focus on the things that, that actually are in your control which you then capitalize on and improve. But uh, so that, that is kind of what explains that. The thing with watching your buddies fail is actually explained by the same idea that when you don't have to live with yourself, or you, you don't have to live with the fact that someone else killed someone on the operating table accidentally or couldn't do the surgery you know, enough to save someone's life, 
uh, you're going to be much more likely to look at what they did or didn't do rather than the external factors. Um, so if you're you know, watching the game that you don't care about, you'll say, oh, you know what, the refs were fine and actually this happened. And if you're you know, a doctor watching someone else do a surgery, you're going to say, well, you know, he's kind of sloppy here or you know, she didn't stitch it up right here or, or this took too much time. And that helped these doctors improve. So I guess where the first idea is create simulations and environments where uh, failure is really just practice and, and it's not catastrophic and it doesn't hurt anyone. Or uh, learn from other people's failures and study those and be hypercritical of the details so that you don't have to make those mistakes. And so I think this is actually something that people have been saying for a while before the fail fast, fail often thing is learn from others' mistakes, not your own. <laughs> but, uh, but it turns out that research actually supports this. Yeah. Well, we've spent much of the time uh, so far talking about section one of Shane's book he calls Shorten, uh, consisting of three chapters. There are two other sections we haven't gotten to yet, and we're not going to have time to cover all of it. But I wanted to dive, uh, Shane, into section two that you call leverage. Uh, can you give us a, a real-world example of this concept in action? So leverage is about taking the effort that you would spend on something and multiplying it. Whereas you know, the first section, Shorten, is about finding a path that is better, like an alternate route. Mm. Um, doesn't necessarily, necessarily shorten the distance, but it shortens the time. Uh, so finding a better way to do things and leverage is about multiplying effort. So there's a, a few ways that, that I talk about doing this. The, the one that is kind of the most literal example is a, an idea that I took from surfing, which is basically you can surf on a very small wave and it'll take you so far. If you can surf on a really big wave and it'll take you farther. When a wave pushes you, it can take you faster and further than just swimming. And so surfers, professional surfers, I studied professional surfers and I told the story of, of the youngest female champion surfer in the world um, who you know, got there very, very quickly and, and is an incredible surfer and talked to them about what makes a difference uh, in world champion surfing. And at a certain point, you're such a good surfer that you can do all of the moves. Everyone knows the tricks, you know, and everyone works out a lot and everyone surfs a lot and everyone practices a lot. Mm-hmm. So in these world championship surf tournaments, what makes a difference between who wins and loses is who catches the best wave. Mm-hmm. So uh, someone, you know, who actually might be more muscular or a better swimmer who catches a better wave is going to win the competition. And so there's a lot of analogies to this in, in business that – when you're looking at accelerating whatever it is you're, you're doing, you're growing, or you want to start a business, if, if you look at places, you look for opportunities where momentum is swelling so that you can get in front of a wave that will push you. So you're swimming just as hard, but you're being pushed three times as fast. Mm. And this is, when you look at, at the history of business, this is how a lot of, uh, of companies end up disrupting uh, incumbents. So new companies will come in and suddenly steal all of the market share of, of an existing company because they're riding a trend or a wave and you know whether it's in consumer behavior or in technology or in something else and so the way that a uh, a surfer can uh, the question then is how do you find a wave to ride on right and if everyone's looking for waves then you know are we all just going to jump on the same trends and <laughs> how do you actually make something out of this and and back to the surfing analogy when you look at the surfers who win world championships they're the ones who show up to the beach hours before the the meet and just mm. to watch the ocean mm. so they sit on the beach and they watch the way the waves behave at that beach and uh 
and you know the way they break and how they come in sets and so that they don't make the mistake that uh, that someone else might make of going after the first wave that looks good <laughs> when they know that a better wave is behind it and that the pattern basically this is called pattern recognition and so um, applying pattern recognition in your industry uh, of the way sort of a trend is forming is uh, is incredibly valuable and this is about again sort of paying being a, a detailed noticer paying attention to the details and spending more time thinking and observing. Uh, than, than just going out and swimming and, and acting like you're working hard. <laughs> so real-life examples in business are, are all, all around. You see a lot of them in, uh, in technology, especially uh, these days, that someone will, will see a, uh, a technology that's on the rise and then get in early. So a lot of companies that, uh, that made a lot of money in the early days of the iPhone were the ones that built apps on top of the iPhone platform as it was starting to swell. If you were an early company that, that built an app on the iPhone, you got a lot more bang for your buck just because the, the tide was rising. You see people with huge social media followings that the only reason they have a million followers is because they were one of the first 10 people, <laughs> you know, and so they get put on the suggested list, they rise with the tide. So, you know, it has a lot of uh, ramifications for marketing. There's, there are also applications for, for building products on top of trends as well. Mm. But what that leads to kind of in, practic- in practice is we as people and as businesses need to create cultures of experimentation where uh, we can put our toe in the water of new trends without diving in and, and jumping and paddling around you know, like idiots if a wave really isn't coming, but being prepared to do that. And you know, the most famous example of this is 3M and then Google with their uh, 20% time where they let their engineers spend you know, a fifth of their day working on any project they want, working on experiments, specifically looking for new things that are on the rise that they can capitalize on. And that's where you know, breakthrough products like Gmail, for example, came from and AdSense, which is you know the thing that makes Google all the money, um, <laughs> was one of these experiments um, based on looking at pattern recognition, looking at the rising trends in uh, in advertising, advertising and and context, context around advertising. Well, Shane, let me ask you: What's the number one problem in your view with traditional networking as it stands today, and what does it mean to be what you call a super connector? So the number one problem in traditional networking is is really the approach that they teach you in school, which is uh, is that you should be a salesperson. <laughs> that if you want to be good at networking, you got to put yourself in the situation where where someone who you want to meet is, and you got to get their business card, your business card in their hands, give them the elevator pitch, be charming and persuasive, and sell them on you know whatever it is that you're doing you know on you sell them on you or sell them on on whatever it is that you're you know you're working on so that's the traditional sort of networking advice is get very good at being charming and and good at sales the better way of networking this the smarter path really and the way to get more leverage for uh, for from your networks is this idea that I call super connecting there there are two components of it one is you can meet a thousand people make that friends with a thousand people um, and it'll take you, you know, a thousand hours or however long, or you can make friends with the person that has 10,000 friends and get them to love you. And, uh, and then suddenly you have more leverage for whatever message you want to, uh, to get out there. Uh, if you can get, you know, influential advocates basically. And the other part of that is it's not just about people who have, you know, people who like them or fans or friends. It's about people or 
groups or technologies that have direct access to speaking to these groups. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of this idea of well-connected plus a broadcast mechanism. The kind of the traditional example of this are actual broadcast companies, right? You mm-hmm. know, radio companies and television stations and newspapers. They're connected to a lot of people. So if you want to reach all of those people, you pay for an advertisement. So you can reach all those people rather than going door to door. So in professional networking, even when working with these kinds of companies, the strategy that is the better way than just being a salesperson to networking with these types of, of connectors is to, rather than ask, to give, to find some way to provide value for them, of sort of being generous and it doesn't really work if it's clear that you're trying to trade value. If you're saying, I'm doing something nice for you with this you know, string attached, mm. but providing value for them so that you can build a relationship that then will yield to them liking you and trusting you and allowing you to, you know, to connect with their or connecting you directly to their, their groups. And one of the best ways you know, with, in business that this works is uh, actually has a lot to do with my business, Contently, which is about using content and stories to help people. So someone who's really well-connected or has a huge audience, they have all the leverage in the relationship. But the best way to make them happy and to provide value for them is to provide value for their audience, their network. One of the best ways to do that is to create content for them. So in, in business, what this might look like is one alternative to reaching the New York Times audience is to, uh, to pay for an advertisement. Another alternative is to write an op-ed that's so good that the New York Times just wants to print it. So suddenly you're in front of this audience. It makes the New York Times look good because they have interesting content that their audience is going to appreciate. And it's great for you because you suddenly got much better access to, uh, to them for free and, and you have this now stronger relationship. So in, in business, that's, that's led to this, uh, this whole industry called content marketing, which is all about instead of advertising, uh, creating content and stories and publishing and, and trying to entertain and, and educate people as a business rather than trying to sell them. So that's a big trend right now that's, that's on the rise. But in the same principle applies if you're just a person trying to build your network. But if you really want to make friends with people who are, are very powerful or influential or awesome or smart, find ways that you can provide value to them. And, and don't go and ask them, how can I help you? Because that's an annoying question. They're, they're busy. They don't need your help. So find ways to help them anyway on your own proactively or find ways to help the people or causes or groups that they care about. You know, uh, there's an example from my life of that just the other day. I, I helped somebody out who I admire greatly. They didn't ask for the help, but I saw they had a problem I could solve. Later that same day, something happened I never anticipated. I got a personal phone call from that individual thanking me for the help that I had given them and a, and a new relationship developed from that. That's fantastic. I think perfect example of what you're talking about. I got a couple of questions, Shane. I want to ask you not directly related to the book, but before I do that, uh, is there anything else about the book you want to make sure that we know? I think uh, you know this idea of uh, evaluating the way things are always done and then seeing if there are, are alternate ways to do it, right? Mm. Thinking about the work and how we're applying it rather than just diving into work is a habit that I think we as a, as a culture, as a society, and certainly in industries like education and health and, and business, uh, we need to, to make that habit, the habit of, uh, of reassessing our assumptions. Um, and uh, and if, there's, yeah, if there's one thing that, that I kind of want to stick from that message is that it is possible for us, no matter who we are, no matter how you know, whether we're a genius or not, mm-hmm. uh, to make amazing things happen simply by thinking differently. Mm. 
Well, I know you're an avid reader, Shane. Uh, can you name for us a couple of books that you've read or, or maybe you're currently reading that have impacted you? And, and, and if so, share why or how they've impacted you as they have. Yeah, so I, I made a list of, of books that are kind of my most influential that I put on my website. It's mm. shanesnow.com slash book list. The, the number one on there is the autobiography of Ben Franklin. I love and, it. Yeah, and I love his autobiography because, well, first of all, he has an amazing story, but he kind of embodies a lot of what I, I, I aspire to. Uh, he you know, was a journalist. He's a brilliant writer. He was an entrepreneur. He was an inventor. Uh, he did a whole spectrum of things that are all kind of in my interest set, but he was this uh, classic uh, reinventor and and rethinker. Like he came up with so many new ideas by uh, by not going down the established path. So he's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I love his his writing because he's the the meta example of of everything yeah. that I, I I like to write about. Um, but he also is that kind of mentor from afar to me. Uh, you know, seeing the way that he systematically got better at writing was really influential on, on the way that I uh, improved my own writing. And so that's, uh, that's been a, a great one. Recently, I've been, I guess my favorite contemporary writer right now is a guy named John Ronson, who he just came out with a new book mm. uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, but he, basically his thing is he, uh, he will put himself into these sort of journeys or these investigations into uh, various topics, usually around kind of weird people or crazy people or people mm-hmm. who believe strange things or have had crazy things happen to them. And so his recent book is about people who've been publicly shamed on the internet and had their lives ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, his book before that was about psychopaths or people who've been locked up into mental institutions, either because they really are psychopaths or because of mistakes. But the thing I love about his, his work is, uh, you know, explores these topics that are, are kind of risky or, you know, not comfortable, but he makes them really delightful to read about. And his writing, one of my favorite professors always said that great writing speeds you along. You read his writing and it feels like 50 pages takes 10 minutes. And, uh, and that's awesome. And I think that's, that is a, is a mark of a fantastic writer. So I've been reading his stuff partially for the, you know, the, the joy of it and partially because it's, it's great to analyze that kind of writing. The other book that I would say that I've been obsessed with lately is a book called the storytelling animal. Um, which is basically about the biology and history and sort of neuroscience of stories. Mm. So it's, it's about how we as, as humans, the way we survived and the way, you know, our brains developed, um, we're, we're made for stories. So, you know, back when we lived in tribes, we sat around the campfire and stories were the way that we distilled this huge world of stimuli and information in a way that we could teach other people uh, how to survive. You know, the saber-toothed tiger story of running away from the tiger was something that you would remember so that when you ran into a saber-toothed tiger, you would remember that it's dangerous. And, uh, and everything from kind of that to, you know, modern, like, brain scans of what happens when we, we read stories or invent stories and how fiction can be powerful for creativity. And so that's, that's a book that I've, I've been telling everyone they should, they should go by. Uh, it's a really fascinating look at human psychology through the thing that we actually spend probably the majority of our lives doing, which is telling each other stories or watching stories or reading stories or reenacting stories to our friends over coffee. 
Well, you've got a great list there. I'll be sure and link to that on the blog and in the show notes as well. Um, the book's been out now for a few months. I want to know, Shane, what's next uh, for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about or can talk about? Uh, so I, I've been really interested in this idea of you know reinvention of industries and, and of self from the inside out, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of lateral thinking. Um, lately, I've been kind of obsessed with the opposite, uh, reinvention from outside in. So what happens when you have people who are very different uh, who come together or... Um, people who think differently or even crazy uh, that end up being very creative. So uh, I've been doing a lot of writing on, on those sorts of things. Again, in this vein of seeing the world differently can lead to creativity and success. Uh, but I'm also I'm doing a lot of writing for, for my own blog, trying to take that sort of different approach to common topics. So using data to, uh, to explore you know, various ideas, like uh, well, the, the post this week, for example, is about the history of music and the history of society's values as uh, viewed through music lyrics over the over the ages is sort of a, a data project so kind of using using a bit of science to uh, elucidate common topics so that, that's been the stuff that I've been writing about lately and that's of course all kind of the, the nights and weekends on the side of, uh, of Contently which is which is the the business that, that we're in where we we connect storytellers to to companies that want to hire them and and that want to want to tell stories themselves. Contently.com. Well, the book is Smart Cuts, How Hackers, Innovators, and Icons Accelerate Success. Shane, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I really learned a lot from, from reading the book. I'm almost through it. I'm, I think, about two-thirds of the way through it and nice. enjoying it a great deal. You, you just are a, a master storyteller. I was, uh, I don't know how else to say this, just super impressed with your, your writing skills for a first-time author. I just was blown away. Well, thank you. That, I'm, I'm absolutely flattered by that. And it's a pleasure to be on the show. If you'd like to dig a little deeper into the books, resources, and other links we talked about today or to leave a comment on this episode, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 081 for episode 81. I need to say a special thanks to several people who in this last week have left five-star ratings and reviews in iTunes. Rick Tooley is up first, gives it five stars, and he particularly liked the John Acuff episode from a few weeks ago. Also, Amy Robles calls it brain candy and education with her five-star review. Thank you, Amy. And Dr. Ramora says worth every minute with another five-star rating. Thank you so much. If you'd like to leave a rating and review in iTunes, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. If you think it five-star worthy and you're sure to write a written review so we know who you are, we'll mention your name in a future episode. You can also leave a rating and review on Stitcher just by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group. We'd love to have you be a part of it. Text READ TO LEAD to 33444. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the READ TO LEAD podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the READ TO LEAD podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Readers lead.